the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are, as a whole, capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. I'm your host, James Strzok. As we get started, may I ask a favor? Please help us reach a growing audience by taking just a few seconds to give us a five-star rating on iTunes. And if you have ideas for future guests and topics, please send them to me at info at servetolead.org. Today, we have a very special guest. The presidential historian Richard Norton Smith is in the house. You may well recognize him from C-SPAN, where he's an omnipresent, beloved contributor, or from his longtime participation in the Lehrer News Hour on PBS. Richard Norton Smith is a prolific writer and author. His first book on the 20th century leader Thomas E. Dewey was a Pulitzer Prize finalist. He's also written well-received biographies of George Washington, Colonel Robert McCormick, and most recently, On His Own Terms, A Life of Nelson Rockefeller. He's also architected and led presidential libraries and museums from Lincoln to Reagan, from Hoover to Ford. And now he's hard at work on a one-volume biography of President Ford. Richard Norton Smith, welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. Well, thank you uh, for that effusive introduction on the present maybe i'm not so sure about beloved <laughs> well we'll leave that to your great audience <laughs> of which i'm proud to be one of many uh, richard norton smith since the 19th century and thomas carlyle's seminal works history in the words of benjamin disraeli was told through the lives of great leaders from the mid-20th century the aperture has widened Long overdue attention has been given to previously neglected members of society and a trend of social history. Please share your thinking on these streams and how you've navigated them and brought them together. Well, I think bringing them together is the key because I, I, I often say, probably too often, that the two most dangerous words in the English language are either or. And you stop to think about it, so much of our problems, cultural, political, um, and indeed, uh, perhaps even scholarly, stem from either or. Um, you're quite right in uh, describing two seemingly disparate approaches, not only to biography, but to history generally, uh, in the great Victorian tradition, um, appropriate enough, Disraeli and his contemporaries uh, were, the, were the subject of massive multi-volume uh, door-stopping uh, biographies, life and letters, if you will, which uh, presumed that our history was in fact, uh, well, Emerson famously said, there is uh, what, no, no history, uh, only biography. Yes. And, um, and, that, and, 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 and also that an institution is the length and shadow of one man, um, which of course dates him in a number of ways. Um, but that tradition, uh, you're right, was in many ways superseded by a different approach. I, I often attribute it to, to the 60s. Mm -hmm. um, if, and, and for example, to get into the presidential arena, uh, why is it, I'm, I'm sure some people wonder, why 
was Andrew Jackson, or to use another example, Woodrow Wilson, routinely ranked uh, in the in the category of near great uh, presidents, you know, those who were just outside the kind of the, the holy trinity of, uh, of Washington, Lincoln, and FDR. Uh, and and why in our time do they seem to have fallen so far? Well, something called the 1960s happened, um, and the offshoots of the civil rights movement, the women's movement, um, Stonewall. Uh, I mean, you name it. The, you can look back at the last 50 or 60 years and see a steady. Not constant, not uninterrupted, too fast for some, too slow for others, uh, but a, but a, a good faith attempt made, however belatedly, to um, honor some of the promises that we made to ourselves at the beginning of the republic, um, whether it was giving giving women giving women um, took uh, the right to vote uh, more than a century uh, after the uh, the start of the republic. Um, anyway, the, the fact of the matter is we broadened our awareness of, of who made history. History wasn't, on one level, history wasn't something, um, you know, reserved for kings and queens and, uh, and presidents, um, figures of, of authority, traditionally measured. Um, history was something that was also made by countless uh, people whose names might never uh, find their way into the newspapers, let alone a history book. Um, we socialized history, if you will. And I, I know on the surface it seems like two very different, indeed opposite approaches. And I think that's not the right way to, 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 to think of this. Um, you know, why is it either or? Why is it both? The fact of the matter is there are individuals, exceptional individuals and or individuals who are in power during exceptionally demanding times. Um, there's no doubt about it. There are people. Why is Franklin Roosevelt and Ronald Reagan, notwithstanding their dramatic political differences, uh, why are they considered uh, the tent poles, if you will? of 20th century presidential history because they changed the weather, the political weather. They shattered the existing consensus and uh, appealing to millions and millions of what FDR called the forgotten man, they transformed not only during their lifetime for a long time after um, the expectations of American politics and government, so it's 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 a combination of individual, if you will, larger than life figures, um, and behind them, um, the fact that there are millions of people who are attuned to uh, the changes that that they represent, and who indeed um, may very well affect those those changes in in a, in a legislative. And, and cultural fashion. What also, George Washington. Yes. What George Washington counts, obviously. George Washington is essential to understanding the American experiment. But the slaves at Mount Vernon 
have belatedly and I think deservedly um, come out of the shadows and we understand Washington much better through their experience and vice versa. This, you've raised so many interesting points. Uh, let's talk a minute about this either or, or the binaries you're referring to. It almost seems yeah. in many cases, and perhaps it's reinforced by innate human tribalism, perhaps by our two-party system in the United States and what that leads to in public discourse. But one wonders now if at times psychology needs to be brought in more and more directly into history and our thinking about the past. How would you respond to that? Well, you know, it, it's it's a loaded subject in some ways. It's um, because remember, you know, how many uh, psycho histories, you know, yes. have, have we read? I mean, there was a trend. That was a trend in biography. The, the problem with that, I, and I'm always speaking for myself, I have no uh, rule that applies to, to, to anyone else. But speaking for myself, I'm not a trained psychologist, let alone psychiatrist. And that makes me very, very wary of, of attempting to apply criteria um, in assessing uh, a historical figure um, that I'm not really qualified to apply. Um, beyond that, Again, speaking exclusively of my experience, I, I'm very wary. I'm very old-fashioned in this sense. I don't believe that it is a function of a biographer to stand in judgment on his or her subject. That, that falls to the reader uh, who can make up their own mind based upon what is hopefully a truly representative comprehensive, indeed exhaustive um, examination um, backed by, again, I'm, I'm, I'm a traditionalist. I, I, I've never used a research assistant. That's not criticism, except to me, I wouldn't know how to use a research assistant. So I'm accustomed to sitting in a chair. When I wrote the Dewey book, I, I moved Lockstock and Remington typewriter to Rochester, New York for a year sat in a library carol for eight hours a day, taking notes from the Dewey papers, went home in the evening and wrote, not only wrote up the notes, but actually wrote the, the manuscript, which is a 700 page book, which incredibly was researched and written in about 18 months, which, um, you know, it only goes to show what you can do when you're, when you're young. But, but even so there's a, there's a contradiction in terms here because you are drawn to a subject. I don't care what it is or a personality. I mean, there's a finite number of, of subject, biographical subjects. And I mean by that people with whom you're willing to live in the kind of enforced intimacy that biography uh, imposes. Uh, there, there are a finite number of people. Presumably you are drawn to this individual in the first place, because you either find something compelling, attractive. Um, you may think, as I did, that Tom Dewey had to be more interesting than the little man on the wedding cake of caricature 
And that applies to, you know, a number of people that I've written about. But at the same time that you bring the necessary passion um, for the work, you must also be equally cognizant of, of the need to be as objective and detached as possible. You know, I, I would say you, you want to be passionate uh, about the process and dispassionate about the product. And um, anyway, I don't know if that answers any of your questions, but it it, um, it is to me the continuing conundrum that uh, that any biographer and I assume historian, unless and and you know to each his own, unless um, they start out with uh, a brief, uh, in effect, to defend or to challenge. There are biographers who are in effect prosecuting attorneys. There are biographers who are uh, obvious, uh, almost uncritical champions uh, of, of of their subject. Um, what I'm suggesting is an entirely different and rather lonelier road, if you will, uh, that that can combine opposites, if you will. Let's talk a little bit about American history and how people think about it. There seems to be a, a notion in the air these days that historical figures have little to tell us, that our technological moment, the many changes going on, make them less relevant. At the same time, one could make the argument that in the case of America, where we're basically initially brought together in significant part by ideas and shared values, and ideals, that history takes on an outsized importance, almost a national security or a founding question. How do you sort all that out? Well, I certainly, uh, um, I would second your, your, uh, your second alternative. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. The, the process of trying to establish, uh, James Conant, who was the president of Harvard in the 30s and the 40s up until early 50s, went off um, at FDR's uh, invitation, um, first of all, to London to uh, consolidate uh, before the war ties with uh, with the Churchill government. And subsequently, Conant was involved in the atomic bomb um, uh, creation. And, and meanwhile, um, back at Harvard, a really interesting experiment was launched, which seems terribly uh, dated in our own time, uh, with Conant's blessing, something called the Red Book was uh, was created and published right after the war, and it was an attempt, a, a, I think, a well-intended attempt to foster what Conant always called a cohesive national culture, and more specifically, to create a curriculum at Harvard that would serve as an example. Harvard in the mid-20th century was still willing to acknowledge and perhaps even boast of its singular position in the history of, of American education and, and to, to accept with that a measure of responsibility for leadership in American education. And the Red Book was, was the perfect example of that. But it was, it was um, inspired by Conant's wartime efforts, 
basically we had just narrowly won this war. We were at the dawn of the Cold War. Conant wanted that generation to be steeped in a sense of, of American values. And, and again, it, it seems almost painfully naive in the amazingly diverse polyglot globalized culture of 2021. But in 1946, it, it made perfect reason. But the idea that, to which Conant was attached, the idea that there was such a thing as a cohesive national culture, I think is something that it, it's easy to dismiss out of hand today, um, almost contemptuously. Um, on the other hand, I'm sure there are lots of people who, at least in the abstract, would tell you that that's exactly what we're missing and that that we have to make more of an effort. We may not attain it, but in making the effort, um, we, we'll, we'll be better than we are. We'll be less fragmented, less divided uh, if, if we at least acknowledge that there are some values, some cultural norms, some traditions uh, that, that bind us. Um, I can't imagine anyone trying to write a red book in 2021, but it would, it would be a useful exercise. It's interesting because as you point out, not only the universities, so-called elite ones, such as Harvard have sort of abandoned that whole field, but the whole area of academic history seems to have fallen or declined, if oh, I might say, yeah. from the outside into all these abstruse, yeah. in a way, self-indulgent topics. Yet at the same time, we know from very successful writers like you, David McCullough, David Kennedy, who's a bit of an exception on the academic side, and others, or Ken mm -hmm. Burns, there's a tremendous hunger to understand American history in the ways you're talking about. Oh. Any thoughts on how yeah. to well, bring all this together? Oh, well, well, you know, watch the American experience. I mean, I mean, literally, that, that sounds uh, facetious, but there's a, there's a classic example of a series that, strike, I think, strikes the perfect balance. Um, it's it's um, unlike some things on other, I mean, cable, you know, it's a, kind of a joke about, you know, where did all the history go on the History Channel? Um, but, but, you know, there is a trivialization, unfortunately, of, of, of this subject, uh, on a lot of the, you know, the rest of the, the media universe. But I mean, um, and I acknowledge my bias about PBS, but I mean, the American experience is a perfect example. Um, I mean, I've learned an incredible amount about this country over the last 20 plus years from being a faithful viewer. Um, and, 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 and more to the point, the show illustrates a faith, which, which is the sine qua non, I think, if we're going to begin to address these large questions, a faith in the fact that there are millions, and as you say, there are millions of Americans who would really like to know more about where they come from. And... Um, the, by and large, the mass media do, I think, a pretty poor job of acknowledging, let alone um, addressing that. But there are exceptions, 
and and we can take encouragement and inspiration from those exceptions. Let's talk for a minute about a related aspect, and that is national narrative that comes out of history in part. And you've written a very beautiful book on George Washington. I know who's, you also have interest in Charles de Gaulle, who was a national founder of sorts for his era in France. What thoughts, what lessons do you think we might glean from those lives and work? Well, it, it gets, in some ways it gets back to your initial question. Is it, is it, is there value in studying the lives of great men and great women? Um, and I mean by that practical value, guidance. And yes, dare I say, inspiration. Um, I, I think obviously the answer is yes. And more important, um, the success of, uh, well, gosh, of, of, of McCullough's biographies of Truman uh, and John Adams, just to, to name a couple, or Doris Kearns Goodwin's um, successive binds. I mean, a, a, a big biography that featured William Howard Taft, you know, as a protagonist does not on the face of it sound like a, a you know, commercially viable project. Or, um, or a few years back when we had not one, but I think three uh, New York Times bestsellers about James Garfield. I mean, explain that, you know? Um, so, so anyway, uh, I, I, let me, the other side of the coin and the, and the difficulty, in fact, of even suggesting that there's such a thing as a national historical narrative, because those words are dangerously close to what Conan had in mind when he was talking about a cohesive national culture. Um, and I, I want to be careful how I phrase this because I, I don't want to point fingers at anyone, but I remember 15 years ago, time passes by so quickly, but I was um, on the periphery. I was put on a quote, blue ribbon panel of outside advisors who were allegedly um, to have some input into the effort to redesign the Smithsonian's Museum of American History, which I believe is Museum of American History and Technology, I think it's called now. Anyway, the original building opened in 1964, and um, anyone who'd been there, and I'm sure you know, many of your listeners know what I'm talking about. You know, they went to the first ladies' gowns. You know, um, there were there were a couple other sort of, um, oh gosh, you know, Archie Bunker's chair, um, Julia Child's kitchen. I mean, they they went to see icons. Okay, but the interesting thing about that museum, one of the interesting things, was how fragmented the storytelling was. There was no attempt. Um, to to suggest that you could, using traditional tools of chronology, uh, for example, the way you would write a, a linear narrative. If you were writing a book in a, dare I say, traditional way, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I understand the story of a country is um, is less easily uh, contained. But but in any event, from from the beginning. The, the, there was a kind of glorious, or maybe a pluralism run amok, if you will. So there was a big room on railroads, and there was a, a room on 
agriculture. And anyway, it, it was, um, uh, well, you get the picture. And, yes. and I was naive enough. I was naive enough to believe. I knew you couldn't um, uh, do a, uh, a narrative that combined um, and ultimately demonstrated the evolution of America which seems to me like a very logical way to approach the story. But I thought at least you could introduce elements of, of, uh, of coherence, if you will. For example, um, you could very, I won't say easily, but you could certainly justify uh, a, a theater, maybe a couple of theaters to accommodate, you know, the number of visitors, but you, with a, with a, maybe a 20 minute, thematic film that would set the stage, if you will. Um, and the interesting thing is, and I shouldn't say this because I haven't been there, so this is based upon uh, the, the comments of visitors and what I have read about, which is fairly extensive, and, and I'm a, I know the, the, the remarkable um, man who... who who opened the museum, but the, the Museum of American History, of African American History on the Mall, it seems to me comes closer to that storytelling coherence. I won't say strictly uh, narrative, it's, it's more sophisticated than that. Um, and it has many, many stories to tell, but it, it conveys them in a way that along with the architecture and the layout of the building that allows a visitor to, to feel that they are um, tracing 400 years or more of African-American history. Um, so there is a, in effect, there's a beginning and there's a next chapter and a next chapter. Um, and I, I'm, I'm encouraged by that. And, and my hope is uh, Lonnie Bunch is now, in fact, the head of the Smithsonian. And my hope is that that approach, which I would say is as close in, in our time as you probably could get to Conan's cohesive national culture, um, might find itself um, being employed at other Smithsonian museums. Fascinating. Let, let's turn a slightly different direction because you have written about so much history, uh, one, one part of it that I think one could discern is that you also focus not just on Franklin Roosevelt, Lincoln, Washington, and so on, but also on highly prominent, accomplished, but perhaps star-crossed figures. I'm thinking of Dewey, yeah. who ran for president yeah. and lost to Truman in 1948 yeah. and what remains probably the greatest upset in history. Herbert Hoover, who came to office with extraordinary hopes in 1929 and within one year saw his project in yeah. ruins. McCormick, the great leader in journalism who really came at it from the right against the New Deal. And of course, President Ford, who among his many accomplishments still was not elected in 1976. Is that a fair observation? And if so, sure. what do such leaders have to teach us from their experience as an example? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think individually, each career, of course, has a lot to teach us. Uh, but in a, as a storyteller, I'm drawn to these people because their story hasn't been told 
or because it has been reduced in, in many ways. I mean, Gerald Ford is the president with an asterisk next to his name. Tom Dewey, as I said, was the little man on the wedding cake. Um, now, the, 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 you know, Colonel McCormick certainly invited caricature. Um, but and again, the trick is you, you don't want to be the defender of these people. You're not their advocate, much less their apologist. Um, but you, you start out believing that um, there's got to be more to them than the character suggests. In the case of Tom Dewey, um, if he had never had, you know, he was born in Michigan, went to New York to be an opera singer, uh, decided to pursue the law, um, never wanted to go to politics. In his 20s, he was asked, what do you want to do in life? He said, I want to start a great law firm and make a hell of a lot of money. And then he had this 25-year detour into politics, uh, first as a, a U.S. attorney in the 30s, um, and then the, great, the gangbuster that inspired countless Hollywood movies. Uh, Mr. District Attorney, uh, the radio serial, was a direct ripoff. I mean, Dewey was a celebrity and a New York celebrity uh, before he was 40 years old. There was Gallup Poll in 1940. He was 38 years old, and the Gallup Poll showed him beating Franklin Roosevelt. I mean, he, he, you know, he had that kind of national recognition. I uh, put Lucky Luciano in jail. I mean, talk about the white hats and black hats. Um, but what makes Tom Dewey interesting, among other things, is the very qualities. Stop and think. Giuliani, I don't think I even say is an exception. The, we, are pre- we are prepared to admire prosecutors. Um, perhaps admire them extravagantly, um, but we're not necessarily prepared to vote for them in an office that requires empathy, compassion, um, you know, a, a, um, the flexibility of feeling, a pragmatism. I mean, the prosecutorial mindset becomes almost a, uh, an obstacle. To, to public acceptance. And so some of that, Dewey was as governor of New York. Most people, if you ask them, um, who, are the, who are the best governors of New York in the 20th century? They would say Al Smith and Tom Dewey. Interesting enough, both of them defeated for the presidency in no small measure because the rest of the country couldn't see them as anything other than New Yorkers. And in Dewey's case, I mean, he was a formidably uh, efficient governor, which in many ways was an outgrowth of his character as a public prosecutor. But the problem was Franklin Roosevelt had changed the rules of the game, the electoral game. And, and the qualities that stand forth in a prosecutor or even in an efficient administrator were not suited to the times or the demands of the times as FDR, again, a, a political game changer. He changed the weather. And, and Dewey really, it, it was too late uh, until, he, until he realized that the rules of the game had been changed. 
Let's, let's talk a minute about another figure who had extraordinary success and also failure at such a level that his overall career could be viewed as tragic, and that's Woodrow Wilson. How would you yeah. evaluate him and how would you introduce him to people today that are, in many cases, becoming acquainted with him solely through controversies such as his name being removed right. at Princeton? Yeah. Well, and, and in many ways, well, it is it is almost the, the ideal, unfortunately, in many ways, the ideal case uh, to illustrate um, the fact that there is no final historical assessment, that there are historical figures. Well, put it this way. It's a kind of tribute in the sense that when's the last time you heard anyone arguing about Franklin Pierce's racial attitudes or Chester Arthur's. Um, the, the fact that Wilson is still at the center of controversy, not only obviously about race, quite legitimately, but, but of course the fact is that ever since his death, since before his death, um, American foreign policy has been, and this is overly neat, but, you know, divided into uh, sort of the, the Wilsonian school um, and and the real politique, if you will, that one would associate with someone like a Henry Kissinger. Um, so Wilson matters. That's the first thing. Whatever you think about Wilson, uh, whatever conclusions you draw, and I think if you're honest, they're going to be mixed conclusions. Um, he's a complicated figure, but he is a relevant figure. Uh, enough so that, you know, David McCullough famously talks about getting right with Lincoln, uh, you know, something that every generation needs to do. Well, I, I mean, in a, in a lesser degree, um, we have to confront ourselves in Wilson. Uh, and the fact that um, oh, here's how, how, how history changes. People often ask, I'm sure you've been asked, um, was there a book that you read, you know, presumably as a kid, that had a lifelong impact on you? Um, the, the equivalent of was there a teacher or, you know, someone? And, and the answer to me, for me, is yes. I, when I was 10 years old, I read a newly published book called When the Cheering Stopped by a man named Gene Smith, no, no relation. That was a very sympathetic account of Wilson's last years. Basically, it kind of skimmed through his presidency and 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 dealt with uh, the stroke in, in 1919, his subsequent um, political as well as physical crippling, um, and then of course his his brief retirement to a street in Washington, and of course caught up in all of that the drama of the League of Nations and Wilson's attempt uh, in some ways to um, repeal human nature, um, certainly challenge um, national uh, convention and, um, and, and, and really um, introduce the element of collective security um, as, um, uh, as a predominant theme of the rest of the 20th century. Now, Many people would say Wilson failed, but Wilson failed greatly. Um, 
Wilson's accomplishments, like his failures, are on a massive scale. And he is such a rich figure that it makes, for example, perfect sense. Um, 50 years after, uh, you know, I was immersed in when the curing stopped, that we are now immersed in, I won't even call it a debate because it is really so one-sided, uh, a re- re-examination is perhaps a better way to put it. Um, we're all revisionist historians where Wilson is concerned, and the revising is being done about his racial attitudes, but also about the abuse of civil liberties that, that he allowed to take place during World War One. I. I mean, there's, there's a lot about Wilson to debate. Uh, but as I say, the fact that 100 years after his death, he is still striking sparks, um, intellectual and emotional, um, tells you something about his continuing importance. One way that we saw his continuing importance was in future presidents who learned from his example, both good and bad, one might say. And Franklin Roosevelt stands at the top of that, having served in Wilson's sub-cabinet, having also been Theodore Roosevelt's relation. And so we're now standing at about 75 years after the world that FDR helped create uh, has been operating, both domestically and in the international order. And at the risk of getting into an either-or question, but to ask you, is it more important at this point to study what he did or how he did it at this moment of change that's again upon us? Well, and not, not to sound like a being evasive, but the fact of the matter is that the two are inseparable. If you talk about studying FDR, if you want to understand FDR, if you want to comprehend his continuing impact, if you want to understand why um, he is invariably ranked with Washington and Lincoln in what I call the Holy Trinity uh, of American presidents. Um, if, if, if in fact there was room on Mount Rushmore, there's little doubt that he, his would be the face uh, that would be added, perhaps even maybe in place of his distant cousin, Theodore. Um, but I mean, someone as transformative as, as Franklin Roosevelt, I mean, Ronald Reagan, who represented, if you will, the next uh, fork in the road, nevertheless, as a young man, voted four times for Franklin Roosevelt. And Reagan, you know, with that remarkable capacity to, to see things as, as he alone saw them, I mean, he, he was, um, he had utterly convinced himself that he was not, in fact, undoing the New Deal, when, in fact, that was the whole thrust of, of much of his program. But he was simply applying to a different set of circumstances, economic and otherwise, the same kind of approach, he thought, that, um, that marked Roosevelt. And it is also true, much of the criticism of Roosevelt today comes not from the right, but from the left, uh, from, from scholars who think that he missed an opportunity a golden opportunity given the uh, great crisis of 1933 um, to much more radically overhaul democratic capitalism. What they overlook is the fact 
that FDR was a democratic capitalist. And uh, the great historical irony is, in, in, I think it could be argued, that he rescued democratic capitalism from its own excesses and indeed, I would say, crimes uh, for which he got very little gratitude uh, from the immediate beneficiaries. And 75 years later, um, is is criticized from the left for uh, for in effect not um, um, not nationalizing banks, for example, instead of having a bank holiday and and restoring public confidence in the existing bank structure. Well, what he did, of course, was two things. In the emergency sense, I mean, he he introduced the idea of government regulation whether it was Wall Street or, or banks uh, or the economy more generally. But secondly, of even more lasting and, yes, immediate import, the, the great legacy of the New Deal was the safety net, the social safety net that did not exist uh, before 1933. It's very interesting, too, as you know very well, that Reagan – got a lot of his ideas about how to be president, how to lead from Franklin Roosevelt's example from the weekly radio That's programs, right. the way he talked. And I, I find it very curious and, and surprising that so many people didn't take that seriously. It, it, people on the right didn't want to believe it. People on the left didn't want to believe it. And yet, when you look back and you see that Reagan was the president at the FDR centenary in 1982, he clearly gave yeah. every indication of that debt and what he thought he was doing. Sure. Well, and, you know, um, Ronald Reagan has been immortalized as the great communicator, uh, you know, with, with some real justification. But the difference was he was simply using a different medium, uh, different tools, if you will, to communicate in, in the tradition of FDR. I mean, he, as a boy, listened to Roosevelt's fireside chats. Um, and, and, you know, that was the idea of what an American president was supposed to be. Um, someone who came into your living room um, uh, with no intermediate filter and who spoke to you as my friends. And who, you know, <laughs> against all odds, um, managed to convince millions of people uh, of both parties, that he meant it. Um, and and I think Reagan um, took that to heart, and in his own way, in his own time, with his own media, uh, which was television, um, um, he, he was in many ways a latter-day Roosevelt. There was also that moment in 1936 where Ronald Reagan, age 25, saw Franklin Roosevelt up close in Iowa and uh, by all accounts was greatly affected by it. Well, not only that, <laughs> his dad, Jack, I think Jack, yes. um, had a job with the WPA. So, I yeah. mean, it was, you know, something very, very tangible. I mean, the New Deal was, uh, um, you know, it came into, the, into their homes and, and, and made it possible for them to keep their home um you know there was nothing uh, remote or or theoretical about this 
Um, you know, there there were programs uh, mocked as the alphabet soup of government agencies by the critics. Uh, but I'm telling you, folks in Dixon, Illinois, uh, they they might have voted Republican, but um, they they cashed their Social Security checks. Well, let's do, let's do a lightning round with a few questions about you. We're going to put you in the uh, the seat. You're not going to be the biographer uh-huh. now. You're going to be the subject for a little bit. Uh, if Richard Smith, if you could do so, what would you tell the 20 year old Richard Smith? <laughs> well, first, I guess I'd give them some condolences. Um, I don't know. That's a, that's a, I, I think, um, I hope I would not presume to, to, to give them any advice in particular, except I suppose if I had to, I would say, um, follow your passions, uh, intellectually. Um, if it's a subject or a topic that, that others may not think of as, for example, particularly commercial, um, disregard that. Um, I mean, <laughs> a 700 page biography of Thomas E. Dewey was not on the face of it, uh, uh, you know, bestseller material. And that's, that's true, quite frankly. Of, uh, of of all the books I've I've written, I, I consider myself very fortunate, very lucky, in a lot of ways to have um, had the opportunity, repeated opportunity, um, to do what I love and to try to do it as well as I could, um, almost regardless of the you know the commercial possibilities. You started your career early, one might say. You're a bit of a prodigy. And are there significant matters relating to biography or to institutions or to leadership or to American history about which your mind has changed significantly over time? Oh, gosh. Yeah. I, I, I thought, I remember, I want to do a, my friend Brian Lamb, I don't mean to name drop, but you know, Brian, Brian and I are longtime friends. And um, we can sort of talk to each other about virtually anything. And I remember once, I don't know, I went on a tirade. I, I'd seen this done. How many times have you seen it? How many times have your listeners heard it? Um, the, invariably, when people get to a certain age, you know, uh, someone shows up with a microphone and asks them, uh, do you have any regrets? And, <laughs> and most people reply, bizarrely, no. I mean, I guess that's the answer that they, they want to hear. And I stopped to think it makes me livid. First of all, it's the stupidest question imaginable. And secondly, what you're saying is you are so monumentally self, self-pleased, you are so complacent that you're really seriously at the end of your life prepared to say, I never said the wrong thing. I never offended someone needlessly. I never misjudged an individual. I mean, on and on and on, you know, Um, boy, Um, which tells, which says in theory that you were perfectly prepared to go through life, not learning a thing from your mistakes. And I think God knows I've made so many mistakes But I think um, I could justify them because in most instances, I learned something from them. That includes running an institution. 
Uh, it includes writing a book, uh, and certainly it, it you know includes human relationships. Well, you're modest in talking about what you've learned, and I think what I and so many of your admirers and readers recognize is how much we've learned from you. As we close, Richard, are there any topics we've not discussed that you'd like to leave us with? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think that's your job to come up with the questions. <laughs> well, if I had the capacity, I would keep you on for seven or eight hours. But as it is, uh, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a total delight. And on behalf of many others, thank you for all you do to bring American history to life, which is all the more important a service as the nation enters by all of our understanding a new period of change. Well, thank you. You're very kind. And with that, thanks to you also, our listeners, for being with us. Please send me ideas for future guests and topics and follow us on Twitter at James Strzok and connect via our website, Serve to Lead. Until next time, take care, be strong, and serve to lead. These are not dark days. These are great days, the greatest our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our station to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race.